0: Good morning, if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our study there. Let's begin with prayer, shall we, before I read. I typically pray after we read, but let's pray beforehand. Father, I ask that in these moments we would come to understand your word and that we would be found to be a people willing and ready to yield to what you have to say. And that we would not substitute our sensibilities or the things that we would like for what your word plainly says. Pray for the families of our congregation who are sick and uh, really going through physical trials. I pray that you would restore them to us soon and encourage us greatly by their restoration. pray that we would be found to be a church willing and ready to help those that are suffering, not only physically, but also emotionally or spiritually. And I pray for this time that You would work by your word to bless your people. Would you pray for yourselves right now and for your brothers and sisters in this room that the Lord would encourage you through his word, convict you through his word, and show you the right path by his word. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts during this time would be acceptable to you. We would not allow concerns outside this room or things that we're excited about outside this room uh, to draw our attention away from what you're doing for us through your word this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 1 Peter 1. I'll start reading in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I want you to note again as we begin that Verse 13 is, has a very central significance to all the rest that follows. As a reminder, the structure of the chapter is to introduce in verses 1 and 2, but then to explain to us what God has done for us in verses 3-12. through 12. One long sentence explaining to us the whole program of salvation, if you will. Everything that God has done in redeeming us. And then verse 13 gives us the shift or the transition from uh, indicative of this is what God has done to imperative. In light of what God has done, how then should you live? And it's worth noting again that there are in fact things that you need to do as a Christian. The Gospel is the gift of God's grace In Christ, on your behalf, where you receive the righteousness of Christ, and that is the basis on which you receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit and eternal life. Yet, it is not then up to you to decide whatever you want to do with your life. There are imperatives. There are commands that are true of the Christian life. You must live a certain way to live consistently with the gospel. And that's what he gives us starting in verse 13, really through the middle of chapter 2. can't bank on the grace of God as a warrant or a license to do whatever you want. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean your freedom to do whatever it is you feel like doing. Rather, it means that you are no longer under the law of Moses, but rather under the law of love in Christ. So, Verse 13 then is significant. What kind of life makes sense in light of what God is going to do at the end? That's that's the point. He doesn't necessarily give us a long list of do's and don'ts. Rather, he's expounding to us, if these things are going to happen, if what God said he's going to do is actually going to happen, he's going to make good on his promises of bringing all that grace to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, what type of life actually makes sense? And there are many versions of life out there that are very, maybe even respectable in our culture or elsewhere that don't make any sense in light of the return of Jesus. And the first attribute of the life that makes sense in the return of Jesus that we talked about last week is holiness. That is, in fact, the first characteristic of a life consistent with His second coming. So we covered Verses 14 through 17 uh, through 18 last week. So, um, this week we're talking about fear. Fear is, in many ways, the second attribute, the second aspect of a life that makes sense in light of the return of Christ. So, I want to talk a little bit about. The Christian life and feeling. If I were to ask you, if I were to just accost you in the hallway of this building and say, uh, what is the dominant feeling that the Christian should feel for all their life? What would you say? What are some answers you might give? You might say joy, thankfulness, peace, contentment, eagerness for the return of Christ. Hopefulness, expectation maybe, and perhaps there are many others. And it's a bit of a cheat to call these things, each of them, feelings, but there's scarcely a better word. Maybe something like postures of the heart or affections, Um, but feeling is fine. The right answer, of course, is that the right posture of heart, the right feeling might be different given the situation. And for the Christian, love is the central theme, and that love leads to all kinds of different postures of the heart, uh, and many others that I didn't list—sorrow, grief, lament—all of those are appropriate for the Christian to feel, given the circumstances. So when we encounter a command in Scripture to feel a certain way or to have a particular disposition of the heart— we are not being commanded an exclusive command. So, for example, in Philippians 4.4, 4, when we're commanded, Rejoice in the Lord always. We are not being commanded, Be filled with joy and only joy always. It's not what it's saying. However, when we encounter a command to feel a certain way or to have a particular posture of heart, the Lord is directing us to something that we often neglect. The reason we run into commands to feel joyful all the time or to take our joy in the Lord is because we often forget to do that. When we find an encouragement or a command to 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 rest in God, to find our peace in Him, it's because we very often don't do that. So all of these things are happening. At once they, they serve these commands serve as reminders that we need to feel all of these things, have all these postures of heart in some way at the same time. you can be sorrowful and rejoicing. Christian life is very much a, a walking contradiction sometimes as, as i 've said before. We often neglect the duty to feel these different ways, so what about The fear of God. The fear of God is not a popular thing to talk about. You might hear things like this. This is what I ran into, someone trying to explain the fear of God away, in my opinion. They said, fear does not mean frightening, but recommending to follow God's advice only for human benefit. And to just explain away this sense, this posture of the heart that is genuine fear of the Lord. Some people might exchange the word fear with a word like respect, reverence, or awe. All are much more comfortable ideas than this word fear. Fear. Fear is usually seen as a negative emotion, and ultimately you can boil down most human emotions or feelings or postures of the heart to the binary of yes or no. So joy is essentially you saying a big yes from the heart towards something, that you're taking delight in that thing. You're, you're happy about it because the, the, the very you of you is saying yes to that in, in a very joy-filled way. And fear is typically associated with no You're afraid of something, you don't want anything to do with that. No to that thing. Or or you fear a certain outcome. No, I don't want that thing to happen. So that's why fear of the Lord can be confusing. Either way, fear of the Lord is a neglected emotion. It's a neglected posture of the heart. And it's very easily misunderstood. When we speak about the fear of God, we do not mean... Living in terror of him, wanting nothing to do with him. That is fear of the Lord without a mediator. And in fact, at the end of all things, those who do not know the Lord will be in terror of him and even cry out for the rocks to fall and crush them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. There is a fear of the Lord that you can have that is terror. And without a mediator, the Lord Jesus, that is what you will one day experience. But that is not Christian fear of the Lord. Christian fear of the Lord, I'm I'm kind of modifying it a little bit. Christian fear of the Lord is different. It's something else entirely. An example of this might be seen when Jesus calms the storm. Remember the story? We read this in our family devotional just a few days ago. There the disciples are. They're freaking out. The waves are crashing in. The boat's filling with water. And they're afraid. They're professional fishermen, most of them by trade. And they're freaking out. There Jesus is asleep. He's not afraid at all. He's not bothered by the wind and the waves. And so the disciples come and they say, don't you care, Lord Jesus? They're, they're manipulating him. Don't you care? Don't you care at all that we're perishing? Do something about this. And then he does something about us, it according to their prayer. And then the text says, and they were filled with great fear. They didn't want to jump out of the boat into the water to get away from Jesus. They were filled with great fear saying, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey Him? It's it's a combination of yes and no for Christian fear of the Lord. We don't want to get away from Jesus, but we don't want to lose Him. We're saying, no, I don't want to lose this close relationship with Him. I want everything that there is to do with this person, but my fear of disobeying Him, my fear of losing Him, my fear of displeasing Him is very, very high. I'm saying no A deep no from the soul against the idea of displeasing Him or walking at odds with Him. That is fear of the Lord. And this brings us down to the most essential things about being human. You were created to be exposed to and to delight in glory and bigness and majesty Being made in the image of God means that you have been given an appetite to see and experience glory. And sin is exchanging that hunger for the glory of God for something else, anything else, even if it is good or a gift from God. This desire to come close to that which is most terrifying is seen in Moses' prayer when he says, "'Show me your glory.'" Moses probably had an idea as to what would happen if he saw the full, unhindered, unfiltered glory of God. God himself told him, you can't see my face and live. I'll let you see my back. I'll hide you from the fullness of my glory and let it pass before you and you'll see my back, as it were. We want this. We crave this. This is why so many people go to the Grand Canyon to see a hole in the ground because it's hard to explain, but there's some glory. There's some austere grandeur there that we're drawn to. You're created for that. No other creature on the planet craves glory. Realize I'm adding this, this statement of God to the text. Look at it. And if you call, Verse 17, "...and if you call on Him as Father..." Who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. He doesn't say fear of God or fear of the Lord. So I'm adding, this is an interpretive point, I'm adding of God to the text or fear of the Lord. And the reason I'm doing that, it's justified in many ways. Uh, For the Christian, though, the only thing we should fear is, in fact, the Lord. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. And do not fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Peter heard Jesus say that. But he's not saying here just have fear generally. Be an afraid person. He is saying, in context, fear the Lord. Conduct yourselves with the fear of God. And I think it's it's so important that we hear this, we often forget to live a life of Christian fear. Or maybe we don't want to live in fear. And I think it's very possible to live a life of relative obedience to the commands in the Bible with no real fear of the Lord. There is a flippant, silly, slothful, unthinking lacking seriousness, way of living the Christian life. No fear of God before your eyes, but you're still doing outwardly the acts that attain to respectable Christian living. It's very possible. My objective today is not so much to define what the fear of the Lord is theologically, though we've already been talking about that, but to expose you to the content of this text. and I think it helped. It it, it helps show us the roots of the fear of the Lord. It kind of sets up uh, boards and boundaries. and, And whatever feeling fits within all that this text says, that is what you need to feel. That is how you need to be in your heart, in the dispositions of your soul. So, let's get into it. Number one, these are the exegetical points I will give you, that the fear of God is a family trait. Begins in verse 17. And if you call on him as father. Peter begins the second imperative, right? He's given us the first imperative, be holy for God is holy. The second imperative of the letter is conduct yourselves with fear. And he begins this second imperative with if. If you claim to be a child of the living God, then you should have an appropriate level of fear. Of God in all your life. So, a question before we dig down into a few observations. Do you actually call on Him as Father? Just like last week, I said this last week, there is a world of difference between saying something like, sure, Jesus is real, and saying, I desire to please the Lord. Just a universe of difference. Likewise, this week, there is a universe of difference between saying, sure, I'm a Christian, and the one true God is my Father. What boldness. What what stark clarity in your life to know the God who is there is my Father. If you call on Him as Father. Let's look at a few observations here. The right fear of God, or Christian fear of God, as I have called it, is personal. He says, if you, if you, individual, you person, you brother or sister in Christ, if you, in fact, call on Him as Father, it is a personal knowledge of Him. There are things that are fearful in the world that you don't have to have any personal, intimate relationship with to be afraid of. Black holes are terrifying. You have no personal experience with them, I promise. If you had gone past the event horizon, we wouldn't know you, okay? It's okay. My my two science nerds friends in here know exactly what I'm talking about. A nuclear bomb, or whatever it is, whatever is terrifying to you that you have no personal interaction with, you can fear things that you don't know. But our fear, our fear of God is based on knowledge. If you, as an individual, call on Him as your Father, you've drawn near to Him in that capacity, that is where this fear of God is rooted. The second observation is that it is rooted in trust, not in doubt. He says, You call on Him. If you call on Him, what what is He talking about there? He's talking about the cry of faith. The cry for help. The same thing that we see in Romans chapter 8. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's not just a name that we now get to call God. That's the cry of help. That God is the source of my comfort, the source of my... Assistance, and and when things are going wrong, when the enemy assails me, and when my conscience condemns me, what is the deepest cry of your heart? Is it, oh, no? Or is it, oh, my Father? Heavenly Father, please help. You can fear things that you don't trust. Say that you're driving along a country road and you come across a dilapidated bridge, You can be afraid of what that bridge represents and the chasm that's beneath it. You're you're afraid of something you don't trust. Maybe a friend of yours who's not a very good planner puts together a plan for a vacation and you're afraid of the plan falling apart because it wasn't planned very well. You can fear things you don't trust, but our fear of God, Christian fear of God, is rooted in trust. If you call on Him. Third, It is rooted in intimacy, not distance. If you call on him as Father, you can fear an enemy. You can fear something that has power and malice against you. You can fear a virus. You can fear a government. You can fear a law, things that are opposed to you. You can fear the enemy. You shouldn't. But our fear, Christian fear of God, is based on this intimate relationship that He has caused us to be in. So, Christian fear of God is that feeling, that posture of heart that one has when you walk in a deep awareness of your close, personal, and intimate relationship to the one true God. He is the one who holds even the subatomic particles together in existence and ensures by His will that all things happen in order and according to His designs and He has made you His child. If you're in Christ. So, fearing the Lord, having this Christian fear of God is a family trait. Those who are not in the family, those who do not have this intimate, personal trusting relationship with the Father, the one true God, they don't really fear God. Not really. One day they will be in terror of Him, just like I said, but not yet. So understand, fear of God is something that only happens post-conversion. This is a gift that you've been given. The ability to fear the one true God. Now, even for the Christian, we may not always conduct ourselves with fear, and that is why we need this reminder. But from this first statement, we get, we get this the biggest problem, I think, for us. The biggest cause of us not living the way that we ought to is to forget what God has done. We're not living in light of what He has done. We forget the Lord and we forget what He has made us to be and so we don't fear Him. We don't understand the nature of our relationship to Him. So we don't walk in an appropriate level of fear. Next, I think we see the origin of fear. He says, verse 17 again, and if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... The root of fear or the origin of fear of God, even for the Christian, or I should say almost exclusively for the Christian, is a belief in the inevitability of God's judgment. It's one thing to say that we're God's children and that we know Him in a personal and intimate way, but that does not quite get us to fear. Not the right kind of fear on its own. One commentator says it this way, our knowledge of Him as Father must not dispel our dread of Him as our judge. We would all do well to take that to heart. Karen Job says it this way, the pagan life that God abhors will be no less abhorred if it is lived by one who professes to be a Christian. The line of separation between creator and creature has to be crossed at some point or there is no reason to fear the Lord. If God just stays there in heaven forever, real as He is, and has no direct personal dealings with us, then His majesty and His power and His might and wisdom don't really need to cause us any fear. Jesus is just up there in His heavenly realm doing whatever He's doing, and we're down here, and sure, we can revere Him, we can can have some respect to Him as Creator, but, but if that is not bridged at some point in this context of judgment, if His holiness has no implications on our living, real consequence, then there's no reason to fear the Lord. So, a few observations in connection with this. The fear of God depends on seeing His justice, number one, as a personal objective. As a personal objective. He says, who? Who judges? And this is different, or versus, being like entrusting it to someone else, or to something like fate or karma, or some people say it this way, the natural consequences of sin. It's not just you going after your own way and and the way God set up the universe is judging you, no. God himself is personally your judge. This is kind of seen as an example in in Moses. You remember what happened? Moses was trying to to try all the cases and he was up from sunrise to sundown and just being exhausted. And his father-in-law told him, hey, you got to get some help. Uh, You need other people to try these trivial cases. and, And if the big one comes up, a big problem comes up, have them bring it to you. And Moses listens and God takes some of the Spirit that was on Moses and entrusts it to the elders. Moses couldn't personally judge all the cases, but your father can. Every trivial case, every thought, every deed, he personally judges he's not leaving it to someone else he has no district courts beneath him he hears every case and every detail of every case he is the judge fear of god depends on seeing his justice number 2 as an ongoing activity who judges Present tense verb. Not who will one day judge, though that is true. He is judging. He, he is actively judge over all your lives. So it's not just at the end of the world. That uneasiness you feel when things get quiet and the noise of your stream of consciousness dies down, and you realize that there is another there evaluating you. Dear Christian, Your Father judges. He's evaluating your life in real time. This is a delight for the believer. This is how David says it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. You can't judge yourself. Paul says the same thing. I'm I'm unaware of anything against me, but that doesn't mean I'm acquitted. The believer delights to know that God is the one who judges me. He will evaluate me accurately and justly. But this is a terror for the non-believer, and it leads to madness. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Knowledge that God is judging our every action leads the unbeliever to more madness. Madness. Fear of God depends on seeing His justice as done without any flaw. Number three. As opposed to something that you could argue with. His judgments are inscrutable. You can't question His evaluation of you. There is no counter-argument. There is no defense that can be made against His judgments. This can be fearful. Fearful from Paul in Romans, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The image being put forward is that when God renders His judgment in real time or at the end of the Word, no one can say a word. No one can find any fault with what He says. With His evaluation of you or anyone else. There's no, but Lord, think about this. There's there's no evidence that you can posit to counter His claims but it's also an encouragement. Because when God speaks of you in Christ as having been justified, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? When God says of you, righteous in Christ, no one can say a word. His judgments are done without any flaw. Number four, Fear of God depends on seeing His justice as detailed and specific to your life. It says, according to each one's deeds. Understand this. I'm going to step down and and try to explain a little bit of this. When we read something like that in the Bible, we we really need to slow down and understand what it's saying. This isn't just a general statement that God is, is judge. And He's not just speaking about those outside of Christ. The Christian does not get to skip out on this judgment because we are in Christ. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25 and the parable of the minas in the cities in Luke 19, you can just think of those as reasons to to say that even the Christian will be judged according to their deeds. Our righteousness is secure. Our place in eternity is secure. But your life will still be judged. This is how Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 3, 12-15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I fear that many in the church today don't have that mindset, and we make it all the same. If you're in Christ, your future is secure, you're going to get the same type of reward. And what's complicating this is that you do in fact receive, you share in Christ's firstborn inheritance. But there is yet still reward or lack of reward based on how you live your life. He will render to each one according to their deeds. But while that is true based on how you live, while it is true that, that our salvation is secure Your place in eternity is secure. You're never going to lose your place in heaven. Yet there may be real loss when your life is judged by God on the last day. You can't convince me that the imagery there with Paul means anything different. Perhaps it's the simple sad knowledge that your life was not lived for the glory of Christ in the way that it should have been. So the point may be just this. Look! Only what is done for Christ will mean anything or be worth anything on that last day anyway. Fear, then, should be a component of our lives because all of our lives will be evaluated on the last day. And it is possible to live your life in a way that will either cause you to suffer loss or to receive reward. It is possible for you to live your life in a way that it is not burned up by fire, and that is through faith in the Lord Jesus. So, God's justice and active judgment over your lives in real times as His eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth and on the final day should create in us a deep fear of God. Or let's flip it around like I said I would. What feelings, what inner dispositions of your heart leading to or accentuating your actions, makes sense in light of God being the living judge. How should you feel? What should be going on in your heart towards your actions, accentuating your actions, if God is going to do that? And He is. Don't waste your life. And yes, while not in the ultimate sense, yet even you, dear brother and sister in Christ, can waste your life. So conduct yourselves with fear. God will judge your life perfectly and in justice. Also, we see that the Christian life is to be lived in fear of God. This is where he comes down to the imperative. He set it up for us. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Throughout the time of your exile. It's a command, and it's repeated over and over and over in the Bible. Conduct yourselves. The the, the term means to, to turn over or to go around, and it would mean literally something like this walk around in fear. That doesn't sound like a positive message to give a group of people on a Sunday morning. Walk around in fear of the Lord specifically. This is just striking. It may be represented in a statement like Jesus says that we're to be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. There's just a seriousness, a a flavor of gravity and fear that's to characterize our lives every day. Not just when the preacher has preached really well or the songs coalesce our emotions to the right place where we see and sense God's holiness and walk in fear of him and it's your responsibility as a Christian to cultivate fear of God again not terror wanting him to go away but fear of displeasing him fear of losing his sweet communion with you fear of offending him fear of defaming his glory I've called fear a, a posture of mind or, or a feeling. And, and what I mean is this. It influences your actions. Fear is not necessarily just an, an, an action. You, you don't find the command of like this. Do fear. You know, there, there's not a set of actions that particularly pertain to fear. It's an attribute of your actions. But as you live, fear is to be kind of the seasoning in your life as you walk around. And in, so as we've already seen, holiness as well, right? Holiness is, is the big summary of all the Christian life. But as we seek to live a holy life, that there's this, this seasoning or flavor that, that, that goes throughout all of it, that, that there's no better word to call it than fear. Fear of the Lord. We're not to be timid people. And in fact, as I said before, fear of God expels all other fears. You will allow your heart to truly fear Yahweh, you will fear nothing else. Fear of the Lord, right, proper Christian fear of the Lord, is something that you open your heart to sense and feel. And it leads to acting differently. It, it, it is a feeling, and I, I know that's a problematic word for some of you guys. But, but understand, it's, it's sort of like pity. Or moved with compassion. Even speaking about Jesus, there's this sense. It's hard to even encapsulate in any other way. I, I'm, I'm drawn to care for this person, and you, you feel a certain way towards them, and you want to act in, in a consistent way towards that feeling of pity, that feeling of compassion, that posture of the heart. That's what fear of the Lord is like. It's a posture of your heart towards all of reality that leads to certain actions. And this is a major theme in the Old Testament. It's basically the the running question through the whole story. Will the people fear God? Or will they fear something else? If you're following on with the the Bible reading plan as as a church, our our church Bible reading plan, you know that the people feared the giants. They saw the Lord split the Red Sea. Then they send the spies and like, yeah, but there's big people. And they got afraid of the big people and didn't fear God enough. So they, they preferred to disobey God, His command to go in and take the land because they feared big people. Here's one of the, my favorite passages about this in Isaiah chapter 8. For the Lord spoke thus to me, with His strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Interestingly, Peter quotes from this very passage in chapter 2. So don't you see? If you fear this one who God will set up as the cornerstone, if you live in, in humble submission and fear of Him, if you're conducting your life properly and not fearing those other things, If you are not walking in the way of the people, but rather in the way of the Lord, then you won't fear those other things. So just a few questions to to really dig down and, and to see if you're living your life in the fear of the Lord. What you fear usually drives what's most important to you. So, what goals have you set for your life? What is really most important to you? What are you seeking is it something that makes sense in light of the fear of the lord and what he will do and his judgment of you and the reward or loss that you will encounter on the last day what is worst case scenario for you is it dying alone is it a bad election result is it losing your influence on your children is it getting sick is it outliving your money? Listen to the radio or, or some financial advice. That's the worst thing that can happen, that you would die too late, right? And outlive your money. Horror of horrors. Is worst case scenario that your children would fall away? Is it that your spouse would stop loving you? Or, is your greatest, worst-case scenario that I would displease my Heavenly Father? Is it that you would be unfaithful to the Lord? What is best-case scenario for you? Whatever whatever ideal version of life that you would put forward, does, are those things... Things that make sense in light of the fear of God? What really makes you afraid? What holds fast sway over your emotions, to use the language of Isaiah? Is it news or conspiracy? The things that just draw our hearts into fear and wringing our hands? How easy is it for you to sin? Oh, He'll forgive me. It's this job to forgive. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Does your relationship to your sins and your struggles reflect a fear of God? These are hard questions. How much do the commands of God really mean to you? When we hear a command like, seek, First, the kingdom of God. Do we just relegate that away and to, to make it justify whatever life that we've already decided we want to live? I like we do occasional Christian things in it and thank God for it? How much has it really changed your life that Jesus demands that you seek His kingdom first and foremost? Do you fear God? Also, we see the duration of the fear of God. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This theme of exiles is resumed. We saw it in the beginning verses of chapter 1 that we're called elect exiles. We're chosen into this relationship with God. And at the moment of this, this union with Christ, this This being made into the family of God, it wasn't a different act. It was the very same thing that caused a disunion between us and the world. The Christian being at odds with the world is the very thing that makes us in union with Christ. We're rejected now. We're cast out. The world has no place for us because we are with Christ. And so, for as long as you are alive, dear Christian, conduct your lives in this fear of the Lord. This idea of exile also shows us another reason that we should live in fear of the Lord. Because we are at odds with the world, that means that we will be tempted to give in. And it will be easier. There will be encouragements, if you will, through temptations to sin to displease our Father. Also, being opposed by the world means that we will be tempted to despair and not trust in God. Do we really need to think of ourselves as being in exile? I mean, surely he's exaggerating, right? And That seems a little fanciful. Look how wonderful the world is. It's beautiful up here in the Pacific Northwest. Are we really in exile? Understand, brothers and sisters, the whole world lies under the power of the Evil One. And that will never not be the case until he returns to slay all his enemies with the sword that proceeds from his mouth. You are at odds with the world. How can the church truly be at rest here while His enemies still rage against Him? Also, this is something I want to note whenever I have the chance. Uh, He says throughout the time of your exile, this is our exile together. It's not... It's not your journey or your particular exile or your alienation from the world. It's us, all of us together, rejected by the world, now together with one another in this exile. There is only one pilgrim way. So we're to live our lives in the fear of the Lord throughout this time of exile. For however long it takes before the Lord returns and sets all things right and vindicates the righteous, we must live in this kind of fear of the Lord. And now we can see the ground of the fear of the Lord for the Christian. Verse 18, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. This is the second ground, really. The first ground is that God is judge. That's the first ground of appropriate fear of God. The second ground is that God has ransomed you or saved you he has ransomed you from a terrible plight. Here are a few other passages of Scripture that speak better of this than I could in summary. From Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the desires of the body, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you." But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. This word ransom is interesting. This is what uh, Leon Morris, a theologian and and, uh, expert on these matters, he said, the very existence of this word group in Greek is due to the desire to give precise expression to the concept of release by payment. So the idea that in the first century, essentially, if you were a slave and it came time to you be, be redeemed from your slavery, the slavery was different back then, someone would go and pay a price to the temple goddess or God and you would be redeemed from your slavery. You would be seen as, as a slave of the deity by purchase of that price. And so the apostles pick up on this word and apply it to what Jesus has done. We're a slave to our sins. We're a slave to our former rebellion. And Christ, or God in Christ, has paid the redemption price for us being taken out of that slavery. Jesus says this of Himself in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life, as a ransom for many. Morris again says this, the apostles did not intend ransom to be taken as the full and sufficient statement of what the atonement was or did, but as far as it goes, it gives a picture of one aspect of that great work. It is a metaphor which involves the payment of a price which is plainly stated in several places and understood in others to be the death of Christ. For the very nature of the imagery involves a substitutionary idea. Instead of our death, there is His. Instead of our slavery, there is His blood. And we're ransomed from these futile ways. He's speaking about paganism. A life lived without the knowledge of God. And this is the natural state of all humans. You can see this in Romans 3. This idea of futility is that there's no benefit. It produces nothing good at all. The way of life that is not characterized by the fear of God is useless. It's Useless now and it's useless on the last day. But in Christ, we are ransomed from all of that. The Gospel is essentially that. That through your sin, you have signed yourself up to slavery, to Satan's sin and death. That is what your sin gets you. Those are the wages of your sins. And what God does is appease the price of His holiness by sending His Son to pay that penalty so that you can be released from that slavery to Satan's sin and death. And now, no longer be a slave to those things, but a slave to Him, to live your life for Him. That is the gospel that we live this life of fear of the Lord because of what He's done, understanding how big of a deal it is that He saved you from all that. He hasn't just gotten you into this thing so that you can go live your happy go lucky life. The, the terror, the darkness, the sickness, the, the profuse horror. Of what he has saved you from should create in you a fear of God. I think if you don't if you don't really understand how futile and how horrible your situation was before he saved you, there, there's very little that I can say to you that will help you live or walk in the fear of the Lord. I think, unfortunately for many in this nation we think that we're just fine in some ways and then becoming a christian kind of improves us a bit or or helps us think more spiritual thoughts or or gets us to a higher plane of existence where there's maybe more joy and more happiness but you understand the trajectory you were on without christ is awful it's terrible And He has ransomed you from that. And now we're given an intensifier of His work of ransom. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. That's what was usually used to redeem a slave from their position of slavery. But with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. This intensifies the fear of God. Yes, you were ransomed from your terrible plight, but at what cost? You know what I fear? I fear that a little statement or phrase like, Jesus died on the cross for our sins can become so old hat, so oft-repeated that we don't feel or sense the significance or bigness of it anymore. We have this contrast again. It's not with perishable things, things that will fade away at the restart or recreation of this world, silver and gold. Rather, the price that was paid to redeem you from the path you were on, the slavery that you had signed yourself up for, was the precious blood of Christ. The all-surpassing, costly life of Jesus Christ. Life and blood in biblical imagery are almost interchangeable. When you get when you shed blood, you take someone's life. When you offer someone's life, you do that by shedding blood. They're they mean the same thing. So there's also a likeness here to the Old Testament sacrifices. He says like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You can bring in all the imagery of the Old Testament and see all of those lambs being slain over and over and over again and realize, just as the author of Hebrews says, the blood of, of bulls and goats can never take away sins. So all of that imagery that was being used is that life is going to have to be shed that is sufficient to deal with sins once and for all. And that is what Jesus' death Accomplishes That is the price God paid to himself to redeem you from your slavery to sin and death and Satan. So the, your fear of God needs a ground, as we've already seen, that he's judge. He judges you now and he's going to judge you on the last day. But it it needs a trajectory that that we're looking towards the last day, but it also needs an intensifier that you, you need things to stir up your fear of God. And that is what this passage, this section does. It's contrast. You weren't just redeemed by tons and tons and tons of gold to correct your debt that you had incurred through sin. You were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. The problem, I think our problem is, brothers and sisters, is not that we have fears. It's that there is only one fear that will give you life. We're afraid of the wrong thing. And we fear Him, the one we should fear, not nearly enough. The only one who owns everything suffered infinite loss in order to save you this intensifies our fear so that we will not go back to the futile ways that were inherited by our forefathers the fear of the lord arises out of this singular observation This was His plan. He planned to offer His Son to ransom you. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We should be stunned that that God would do this. It wasn't because this was the only way. That's true. But he designed this universe so that he would have the opportunity to do that. He wasn't obligated to create. You know that? He orchestrated this universe so that the cross would be inevitable. And it was His plan to crush His Son for you. I know we didn't ask for that. We weren't wise enough to ask for that. But He has brought you into this relationship with Himself at the cost of His Son's life. That is the ground and trajectory and intensifier of the fear of God. That this being that we can scarcely comprehend with the best of our imaginations has done all this and brought us close to Himself to be His treasured possession at the cost of His Son. At infinite cost. So, just a few few final exhortations. Do you really fear the Lord? If not, (laughs) fear Him. Walk around with fear of the Lord. Conduct yourselves with fear. In this Christian sense, again, I'm not saying you should be in terror of Him, but understanding that He is your judge and He judges justly and impartially. And understanding that He has done all these things. Crushing His Son in your place so that you could be with Him. Don't go back to the futile ways that cost Him His life. Do you cultivate the fear of God in your life? Is, is it even something that we think about doing? We wake up and realize, man, I don't fear the Lord enough. That's always the case, but it's an objective that we should think of ways to cultivate a proper fear of God. Maybe meditate on these things that we've been talking about this morning. Pray for the Lord to show you what you must do in your heart to have a proper fear of Him. Do you use your time in a way that reflects a proper fear of God? If not, consider that He is the One constantly evaluating your life every moment. And it will be in evidence on Judgment Day. This is why we're commanded, make the best use of the time. Do you understand? This this will be my last question that I give to you. Do you understand the Gospel enough and what God paid enough that there is real fear in your heart against the possibility of displeasing your Heavenly Father. If it is not a real fear in your heart, you must cultivate it now. as that, in many ways, is the point of this passage, that you must walk around with this fear. Because only those who fear the Lord are acceptable in His sight. Let's pray. Father, may it be that we would be found to be Your people who would always fear You properly. Know that this is not the most popular or cheery message to hear, that we must fear You and walk in a a humble, penitent, contrite, Honest fear, but may it be so. May we so love you that we would fear even the slightest possibility of displeasing you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.